Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear Matthew Shinoda speaking with Kwame Dawes about African poetics, reggae, and poetry of the African diaspora. Kwame Dawes was born in Ghana in 1962. He spent most of his childhood in Jamaica, a place that figures prominently in his writing. He has written over a dozen books of poetry, as well as children's books, fiction, nonfiction, and books on reggae. Dawes is a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he teaches African, Caribbean, and African-American literature. He also directs the Calabash International Literary Festival, which takes place in Jamaica each year. Matthew Shinoda is an award-winning writer who has taught and lectured extensively in the fields of ethnic studies and creative writing. He is currently Associate Dean of the School of Fine and Performing Arts at Columbia College in Chicago. This conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in March 2013. We begin with Kwame Dawes describing how the events of his life provided a perfect vantage point for viewing the emergence of Pan-Africanism. This is an interesting thing. I was in Nicaragua um, last week uh, for the for the Granada International Poetry Festival, and and I was labeled as Ghanaian USA, and so so I would you know say hello and so on and so forth, and then they would look at me funny, and I said no, I, I'm also from Jamaica as well <laughs> because they could hear um, what was coming out, and this is one of the complexities of my life. But the the, the straight narrative of my biography. Is simple. I was born in, in Ghana, um, in, in Accra. My my father was a Jamaican, and my mother is Ghanaian. Um, she's she's an Ewe Fanti person from across that border. So I was born in Ghana, lived in Ghana for about eight years or nine years growing up, and then we moved to after a brief pit stop in England for about two years, we moved to Jamaica which is my father's home country. Of course, the little twist to it is that my father was actually born in Nigeria. His, his, <laughs> you know, his parents were, were sort of missionary teachers in Nigeria in the, in the 1920s. And so he was actually born there and naturalized Jamaican when he moved to Jamaica. So then I spent most of my, the rest of my childhood and early adulthood in Jamaica and then left Jamaica to study in Canada, at the University of New Brunswick. And then from there... I, t I took a position at the University of South Carolina, where I worked for almost 19 years um, before moving to Nebraska. So, so my journey has taken me some interesting, interesting turns, and I feel very comfortable owning my Ghanaian-ness, my Jamaican-ness, and, and, and my, um, now my American-ness, I guess. So can you speak a little bit about, first, the Ghanaian-ness and whether that upbringing and your connection with Ghana in particular shapes your own aesthetics. You're, you're obviously well known as, as a writer of the Caribbean and as someone who works in the reggae aesthetic and, and someone who engages very deeply in, in the larger conversation of Caribbean literature. But I wonder if you could speak as to how Ghana plays a role in your own work. Yeah, it's a, it's a curious thing because I have to ask myself that all the time. I mean, sometimes you can put it on and say, okay, I'm Ghanaian and I pull all the connections that I have with Ghana. But I realize that so much of my formative sense of self uh, is developed in Ghana, was developed in Ghana. Um, one of the amusing exercises that I, I, I did recently was to think of 
sort of what is my idea of uh, the most comfortable food that I would like to eat, right? Now, I'm a f I like food. In other words, I like food from all over the place, and, and I'm fascinated by food. But I always return to banku and okra stew, and that is because that's, that's a childhood memory. That's a, it's contained in that relationship between myself and food. Um, there's also an interesting relationship with my, my grandmother, my mother's mother, and my grandfather, my mother's father, where they, they lived, the, my mother, grandmother lived in Cape Coast, just under Elmina Castle, right? And she, was a, she baked bread in, in, in Cape Coast, um, this outdoor mud oven that she used. And so, so I spent, we spent summers there with her, and then we would spend stretches of time in, in Lome, in Togo, where my grandfather lived. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and in many ways, being Ghanaian was, was defining for me so that when I moved to Jamaica, I moved to Jamaica as a Ghanaian and I was made acutely aware of my Africanness growing up in Jamaica. Um, so so, so the, the curious way in which Ghana plays a, a part for me is that it, it contains, there are all kinds of memories and there are all kinds of sort of symbols of, of self and identity that, that emerge in my work and that, that keep repeating themselves. The, the, the lullabies that I know, the, the, the children's songs and the memories of those are still part of, part of my routing. But of course, the, 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 the beauty of it is that having moved to Jamaica, in a sense, it gives me permission as a diaspora person to then say that my Ghanaian-ness and my Africanness is is at the core of my identity. And Jamaica makes that happen more real than, than anywhere else because of Rasta and because of, of what Africa means in Jamaica. Well, and, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, that transatlantic relationship in a contemporary landscape to move from Cape Coast to Jamaica and that relationship moving across the Atlantic that, of course, has a very significant historical place in the world, but how that has played into your own kind of sense of identity as a writer. Yeah, the movement and the connections across diaspora are so so fundamental to my sense of identity. And I think I come at it honestly in the sense that my father was a, was a man of, of, of diaspora and a, and a man of Pan-Africanist sensibility. The fact that my father grew up in Jamaica and Jamaica, fairly conservative place, not necessarily embracing of Africa, at least at the middle class level, right? Um, even though it is Jamaica that produces Marcus Garvey, it's Jamaica that sends all these sort of missionary teachers to to to, to Africa, um, you know, in the in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds and into the nineteen hundreds. There's a strained strained relationship with Africa, but my father. He goes to Oxford University, returns to Jamaica to teach, and then he decides he's, he's getting out of Jamaica and he's going to Africa. He goes to Ghana at the height of Kwame Nkrumah's um, fantastic rise and, 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 and the, the movement towards independence. And when my father returns to Jamaica, he becomes the director of the Institute of Jamaica and establishes the African Caribbean Institute mm -hmm. and also begins incredible connections and exchanges between Africa and, and, and Jamaica, different parts of Africa and Jamaica. So in a sense, for me, my father's example was very clear. It was an example that said Africa is in Jamaica and Jamaica is in Africa. So that's on my father's part. And then my mother did something amazing. When we got to Jamaica, I remember we went to Maroon Town up in the hills. 
and these maroons were singing these songs and so on and um and 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 then my, <laughs> it was really funny because my mother said you know what you're saying and they said no they've just been repeating these words for you know for, for ever since they've known themselves they've been passed on and there were fancy words just springing out out of it. And my mother was able to tell them, no, this is what this means and this is what that means. And that was that was like really sort of striking and phenomenal. The the idea of Africa's presence, Ghana's presence right there in Jamaica. So for me, it became a way to define myself as somebody searching for home and searching for for a place to feel at home, um, the, the diaspora as 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 a as a place of grounding and, and identity and positioning um, became incredibly important for me, um, even as a kid uh, in in the context of Jamaica, and and I think that continues to be what what makes me able to connect with African American communities, communities in in Colombia, communities all over. That there is a real thing called this diaspora, this African diaspora. Well, and, and and in that sense, this notion of diaspora is quite literally in your in your DNA. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk for a moment about the specific nations of which you have roots, which play a very significant role in the larger conception of a Pan Africanism. Both Jamaica with Marcus Garvey, with later Bob Marley, with all of these different individuals that have come from there, and then Ghana with Nkrumah who married a Coptic woman, as a matter of fact, and there's a very interesting connection there between Ghana and Egypt. But I wonder if you could speak about whether those political histories, if you will, play into your own conception and idea of a pan-Africanism. If if I was to design the the narrative that is going to make me a great pan-Africanist, I could not have (laughs) planned it better, right? I really couldn't have. I mean... I'm born in 62 in, in Ghana, right? The day I was born, Nkrumah survives an, uh, an assassination attempt, which leads, of course, to my father having a great party and sort of missing my birth. But that's another story. <laughs> that's another story um, for another time. But what I mean about the, the fantastic coincidence and connection is that Ghana presence in Jamaica through the the Maroons, um, the Nani, Kojo, all of these Maroon figures and so on and so forth is not incidental. It's it's direct. There's a direct connection with Jamaica. And so the Pan-Africanism of Nkrumah and so on echoes in in Jamaica. And it's Jamaica that produces, as you said, Marcus Garvey. It produces Rasta, who then engage Selassie, who who is is for a long time really the bastion of Pan-Africanist ideas and so on. Um, And of course, it produces the reggae of Bob Marley, which then says, let's return and think about Africa. So in a sense, I found myself growing up at critical points in in the histories of these two these two societies that were defining that were in many ways defining but it's not it's not all pretty i mean and i i should emphasize that that growing up as an african in jamaica in the 1970s without the the embrace of rastas I would have felt so alienated because we were teased, we were harassed, we were told that we were from the bush, we didn't know, we couldn't be comfortable in clothes and shoes and so on. But I remember when I was in primary school in Jamaica, being teased and harassed at school, and then leaving the school, walking home from school, and a bunch of rastas just sitting outside, they were selling oranges and so on and so forth, and they had heard that this is an African. And I remember these guys calling me over and saying, sit down and tell us about Ghana. Tell us, tell us what the trees are, what the fruits are. 
And I have to tell you, as an 11-year-old kid, it was the most affirming thing that could happen to me because their passion and their their sense of their sense that there's a home beyond this this Babylon that they were living in. And I knew it was Babylon because of the way these cats were treating me. <laughs> right? But their sense of a home beyond that and their affirming my connection um, was really affirming for me. And, and I, I remain indebted to the Rastas for the dignity they, they brought about Africa into the Jamaican landscape. And it transformed Jamaica. There's absolutely no question about that. So for being positioned in those two places, I think, was really important to me. And remember, this is Jamaica in the 1970s. This is the period of Mark Michael Manley, his experiment with the non-aligned movement. Socialism is going on. There's an idealism. There's, a, there's an engagement with Pan-Africanism. Nairi comes to Jamaica. Michelle comes to Jamaica. I mean, it's, it's a very dynamic and energized place. And, and, and moment that is happening, and I'm I'm living in that space. And for me, you know, and then of course reggae music is blowing up. So those things were really defining for me. Well, and and speaking of reggae music, and I I want to spend a moment here, and I, I'm reminded first of of an old song of the South African reggae musician Lucky Dube, who talks about this very relationship that the song tells a story of a South African man who is interested in Rasta, who is interested in in reggae music and wants desperately to get on an airplane and fly to Jamaica and tells on the flip side of the song the story of a Rasta in Jamaica who wants nothing more than to get on an airplane and go to Africa. And so this interesting longing between these two spaces where each sees something potentially affirming, as you've said, in the other's relationship and your ability to to somehow bridge these two things and, and how reggae music plays into that, gives a narrative for it in a way. I wonder if you can speak a bit about that narrative and its influence on your own aesthetics as a writer. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, and I, that's a great Lucky Dube song, and it's a very interesting song because I think Lucky Dube finds the irony in it. I don't know if he works his way around it. I mean, he sees the moment and he goes, well, isn't that weird? But the great thing about that that idea is that it is an important way in which, a beautiful way in which Africa becomes presently located globally. And I, and I think it probably is best articulated. It's almost as if Dubé's song is there and then you think of Tosh singing, no matter where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African, right? And suddenly you, you begin to see that Tosh is saying that the Africanness of memory, of a, a lived memory and a memory of, of a historical memory um, becomes important in framing somebody's sense of, of place and identity. And I think for me, um, as a writer, what that offers me is, I think as a writer, one always wants to have a sense in which one is building something, building on something that is that is trying to be built so that I'm adding to an existing narrative, an existing poetic, an existing, an existing aesthetic that is there, and I'm adding something to it. But at the same time, one also wants to feel an ownership of a, both a landscape but also a kind of mental space, a space that makes you feel, okay, I can rest in this and say this gives me a place and for me to leap, right? And for me, the idea of diaspora is such a home, but that home is, is strengthened by my 
clear connection with root-based connection with Jamaica and root-based connection with, with, with Ghana. Because in Jamaica, I can trace, and I've been working on this, trace back my, my family's history, that my father's family's history. And it goes deep into, into the history of slavery and, and deep into the history of Jamaica's identity and, and, and across the Atlantic. Um, and, and so I feel that there's a root that is there. But what is beautiful for me about that root is that that root never forgot Africa. For me, for me, this is this is a grand thing. I mean, that that my grandfather, you know, in 1912 decides that he's going to take off to go to Nigeria, right, and go to Port Harcourt and work there and worry and work there and be a part of this, this connection and this relationship. To me, it's, it's, it's a fantastic thing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing because it means that what I be, I've become passionate about is something that has has a place in my own my own DNA, my own sense of of who I am, and I think my work seeks to to, to engage that, but engage it because one of the beautiful things about that rootedness is that it allows me then to comfortably engage other aesthetics, other cultures, other you know European languages, um, Indian writers, and so on, because. If I, if you know your history, then you'll know where you're coming from, and you won't have to ask me who the hell do I think I am. Which means it allows me then to engage other things without feeling that I'm losing track of myself. I never feel that way, and and to me that is, that is a gift that that I'm grateful for. So th this opens up a very interesting conversation, specifically about literary lineage and your work as a poet. You're someone who is deeply versed in African poetics who is deeply versed in Caribbean poetics and deeply versed in American poetics, all of which inform your work. I wonder if you have any clear sense of where you find yourself in that triangle or if you're always pulling from different elements of it. I'm always pulling from different elements, but here's the beauty of the reggae aesthetic, and this is what has given me. I mean, when I wrote Natural Mysticism towards a new uh, reggae aesthetic, what I realized was that reggae gave me the model for me to be able to engage all of these things. Because what the model of reggae is this, that there's a bass, there's the drum and bass, there's the bass line, there's the sort of grounding. And my grounding is clear. I'm comfortably rooted in, in Africa. I'm comfortably rooted in Jamaica's Africanness and that connection. But on top of the drum and bass, the keyboards are going, the guitar is going, the, the vocals are going, everything else is happening on top of that and, and being defined and being locked in by the drum and bass. So that grounding then allows me to pull on American poetics and aesthetics, it allows me to pull on British poetics and aesthetics without feeling as if I'm giving up my rootedness and my connection to that, to that root. So for me, I think my work roots itself in language, in a sense of place and, and sense of understanding in that root, that African, African diasporic root. But then it dances comfortably with other cultures and other ideas because there is a confidence in the root, right? So there's a confidence in the drum and bass. You know, in other words, you, you, you know, one of the funny things for me is for a long time, I would be startled when I would hear these 
you know songs like my girl and 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 so on and so forth and i would think what what a horrible you know rendition of a great reggae song these are because <laughs> because my first my first encounters with these songs were reggae reggaefied versions and i thought these were the originals and then i'd hear you know i'd hear all the great you know r&b singers doing that. i'd say well you know they're trying but the, you know why are they why are they ripping off these great jamaican tunes and the point i'm making is that Reggae's root allows you to reggaefy anything, even as it maintains an element of its other thing. And for me as a writer, that gives me an incredible amount of permission and confidence to engage the work from, from all over and still feel comfortably rooted. So th this becomes a very interesting metaphor, if you will, for the larger conversation that often happens amongst poets of color in the United States of America, in that what you're talking about with reggae music would be very different than, say, hip-hop music, which has a real contention around certain notions of selling out, for lack of a better term. Reggae music has never worried about that. Because of this rootedness that you speak about, it has never been concerned with borrowing and playing on a commercial stage and, and engaging in this way. And I wonder if, as a writer, you have that same sense that this is not something you think a great deal about, Where, whereas I do think many writers in this country are engaged in that conversation, that a certain kind of poem, a certain kind of aesthetic, a certain kind of engagement could tip the balance into this this realm of of what people call selling out. Yeah, and I think I think that's true, and I think that is an anxiety that comes from the incredible assault on confidence, the, the incredible assault on the confidence in one's identity that has been part of the, 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 the experience of so many people of the African diaspora. Because prior to the emergence of reggae, it's, it, the, this, this was an issue in the, even in the Caribbean. It's, you know, it, 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 it exists as a contention, as an area of contention. My father's generation were, were, were filled with this anxiety, with this sense that what are we doing as writers? Are we building the British lit literary canon or are we creating something new? But how can we create something new when we don't even have the languages of Africa? So who are we in this context? And it was a great point of anxiety. What reggae music really starts to do is to create, in a weird kind of way, a contemporary indigenous reality, a reality that grows out of the post-colonial space and then makes that post-colonial space its own sort of clear and coherent identity and a mutable identity. I mean, one of the great things about Lee Scratch Perry's aesthetic is that it's an aesthetic that is happy to pull from anywhere. Um, and, and to pour it into it to create something dynamic and exciting. And we, we have a clear pattern in that in, in, in jazz, for instance. There's, there's that element in, in, in jazz. So I think, yeah, I think the, the reason for, for some of those anxieties is not, is not on the individuals, but it's the way in which the, the, the assault has taken place to, to demean an African identity to the extent that one has to overcompensate to sustain that African identity or that African-American identity. And one of the things that I, I really, you know, in teaching and in working with writers and so on is to tell them, to help them to reaffirm that, that sense of, of place and that comfort in place and therefore the, the ability to then 
to then explore while still holding fast to to a rootedness that that that, that is unassailable. You and I have been working on this thing with, with others called the African Poetry Book Series, and we're seeing in this a lot of young writers from across the African continent who have submitted work for the series. And and one of the things that I find very hopeful in this project is is precisely what you're talking about, that they are beginning to see a way to break that trend in a sense. And I wonder if you could speak a bit to that going back even to the tradition of, say, modern Ghanaian or West African and more general poetry, that the, the modernist poetry has, even in the post-colonial era, a very European element to it. Yeah. And I wonder if you could speak about that shift that's happening now with this younger generation of writers who have have seemed to finally kind of break away from that and begin to create what you're referring to as this kind of odd indigenous sense of the, their own aesthetic. One of the, one of the things that in the evolution of 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 modern say Ghanaian poetry has been the ways in which the the the, the Ghanaian artist has had to reconcile their poetics and and the the contradictions the the sense of contradiction in their poetics with the reality of colonialism i mean colonialism has to be contended with um and the way one contends with colonialism becomes the way in which uh, a, a new poetics emerges and it can go badly or it can it can be a positive thing i think one of the one of the great things that we see in the work that is emerging whether it's zimbabwe south africa whether it's um kenya or ghana is that there's been a buffer. There's been there have been pioneers. There've been people who have taken the brunt of that confrontation, that that strange contention with colonialism, and they've taken that and and yet generated a work that gives the new generation permission to explore in different ways. And I'll be more explicit about it. The the history of modern African poetry is relatively short. I mean, if we speak in general terms, it's relatively short. It's a it's a it's a history that is rooted in Europe Eurocentric languages, poets writing in English or French um, or Portuguese or in some instances Spanish, and also poets who have come out of the academy. They've come out of the colonial education system, and of course, their first instinct is to imitate and to be in dialogue with 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 the western tradition largely because for many of them even when they are writing in their own languages those languages as written languages were written, were created around the translation of the bible and the tra translation of what was largely western western um, ideas and thought and so these these writers begin to write in a way to redress some of the problems that they see in the portrayal of Africa and the treatment of Africa, but also to write in a political way, which is to write against the, the colonial forces and so on. But in the process, many of them wrestled with the thought that they were compromising a kind of aesthetic that was rooted in a kind of indigenous aesthetic. So people like Kofi Awuna, Kofi Anidoho, and so on, many of them would embrace Ewe language poetry as the long tradition of Ewe language poetry, and then 
then try to, to create a, an English rendering of it in a way that draws on the Ewe tradition and yet it has a kind of modernist presence. But they are pioneers, and so there's a wrestling that takes place in that process. What the contemporary poet is able to then do is to say, look, these guys have done this before, and they've created this really interesting poetic that I can, that I can refer to as Ghanaian, as a, as a part of who I am as a, as a writer. But at the same time, I'm now freed up. Because I have that rooting, I'm now freed up to explore what is going on in, the, in, in terms of modern poetics and, and in the world, and to see the ways in which I can feed that tradition and challenge that tradition and, and also take that tradition to another level um, without losing sight of, of, of my own sense of identity and place. And I think that's happening. I think that's one of the rich, exciting elements that is there. But one of the great things that comes out of Africa, and this is, this is a, a crude generalization, but th that the poets are still writing about things that really matter. In other words, in other words there's life and death involved, and there's a real sense in which they are looking out of their window and seeing a world that is complicated and that is that is earnest and urgent, and they're writing about that. And I think there's something fresh about that. There's something compelling about that that I find incredibly exciting, and that's what we've seen in the work that has been coming in. Well, uh, and I wonder in that vein if you think that they're, because of a 21st century globalization, if you will, if you think there's been... To, to continue to use Ghana as an example, an evolution of Ghanaian English, if you will, that now pulls more from the Americas, perhaps, than simply from England or from, from other European centers. If that globalization influence that, that certainly affects the younger generation is shaping language and is allowing them more ways to create a kind of Ghanaian lexicon in the English language. Yeah, I mean, one of the gifts that America gives is its absence of a kind of monolithic aesthetic. I mean, this is this is one, this is one of the great beauties of America in the sense that, even though many many feel that that's one of its weaknesses, but it's actually the strength. The strength of American aesthetic is, or the, the aesthetics as a, as a kind of plurality, is that anybody sort of looking in on American poetry will realize that while there's some lines that are are connected and there's a commonality but there's a variety and a range that is that is actually empowering for for somebody sort of looking on because of its broad range an african who is reading american poets a, a range of american poets will begin to see the the, the the possibilities of 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 finding their own voice in the midst of that in a way that wasn't as 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 clear when you engage say with british literature which even though it's expanding because of immigration it has stayed in terms of the establishment has stayed fairly monolithic in style and and, and so on um, and I think that's one of the, the rich things that have that have that I think engaging America has 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 provided these writers, but it it does not give them the assurance. Therefore, however, that their work will automatically be be engaged by Americans. But what it does give them is a freedom to no longer feel that they have to write in a specific kind of way to be legitimate. And I think I think that's one of the um, that's one of the great things that 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 has happened. Yeah. I want you to read some of your own work, but before we get there, I, I've had the pleasure recently of editing your new and selected poems, Duppy Conquer, which will be out next month from Copper Canyon Press. And, and in the process of editing that book, one of the things that struck me is how often your work engages spiritual narratives. 
And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of, in a broader sense, or however you choose to approach it, of spirituality in your own work as a poet. Listen, one of the things that was really transforming for me about Bob Marley and reggae music, it's the permission that it gave me as a writer to engage with spirituality, to engage with the idea of one's spiritual sense. Because this is my reality. I'm not first a writer. I'm first a human being. I'm first a, a father. I'm first a husband. I'm first a brother. I'm first a part of a community. My writing will only reflect that. In other words, my writing is not going to define me. My writing is a reflection of that, that dynamic. And, and one of the interesting things I realized was as a developing writer, as a young writer, I realized that there's a way in which while you're shaping your, your, your poetics and, and, and what you write about, you begin to model those writers that you admire. And you're not just modeling them in terms of form and style, but you start to find yourself in content, modeling them, and then in, in philosophical viewpoints and so on. And I, it dawned on me that, wait a minute, as I start to write and say questioning this or questioning that, I, I realize that these guys don't necessarily believe what I believe, right? And, and so now I have to start to think, how do I write what I believe? How do I write out of the space that makes me who I am? And I'm unabashedly and quite clearly a Christian in the, in the old traditional sense of somebody who believes in Christ and all of these things. And the question was, do I suppress that as a writer? Do I, do I take that you know, out of my work or do I find a way to, to create a poetics that grows out of that, that, that connection and, and that reality for me? And, and reggae music says, it is fine. It is fine to engage that. It is fine. It doesn't mean that you you clean yourself of politics, of of the sensual, of of all of these things. And so, for me, reggae gave me a, a great deal of permission to do that. And so, you'll see that dimension of me trying to reflect who I am in the poems that I write and in the way that I, I write my poems and the, the subjects that I write my poems. But w one of the things that is dangerous about the American context is that if I say I'm a Christian, it suddenly seems like a like a limiting thing, like it's just going to close me up. And then they they're shocked when they read Goma's song and go, "Oh my God, what is he? What, what is he doing here?" Um, but it's all part and parcel of the thing. So, for, so, so, it, in a sense, in a sense, my aesthetic grows out of. It's a reflection of, 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 of a lived life in, in all its complexities, all its anxieties and all its contradictions. And I think um, those things will emerge in, in, in the poems that I write. Can you share some poetry? Sure. One of the poems that I, that is in, in Duppy Conqueror, um, was, which was first published in Wheels, um, is a poem called African Postman. I was in Ethiopia a few years ago doing some work with the BBC on Haile Selassie. And I went to the, the, the town of Sheshamani, which is an area that um, Selassie ceded to, to anybody from the diaspora who was interested in returning to Ethiopia. And uh, many Jamaicans went and settled there in Sheshamani. So I went there to talk to people about Haile Selassie. And I met a man called Solomon Ephraim Wolf. And uh, we had a conversation. So, so this poem is, is a reflection on that conversation. African Postman for Solomon Ephraim Wolf. Son, who is that? Is the African postman daddy, burning spear. East from Addis Ababa, 
and then south deep into the Rift Valley. I can hear the horns trumpeting over the flat-roofed acacia trees. See African women bend low with wood heavy on their backs, and the cows, goats, donkeys, mules, sheep, and horses snapped into obedient herds by sprinting children move along the roadside. Life happens here. I'm traveling to the land I have heard about, Sheshemani, the green place, 500 acres of jazz benevolence. And I know now that I long to hear the rootsman tell me how, despite rumors of his passing, the Nati keeps on riding, keeps on standing in the fields of praise to hold on to the faith of roots people. Brother Solomon, you put the name Ephraim on your head and carry the face of the true Rasta, the face of an Ashanti warrior, eyes deep on the heavy lids, and your skin tight as leather, blacker than black. I have met you before on the streets of Kingston, there where you trod to the hiss and slander of the heathen, you, Natty Dread, gathering the people's broken minds into your calabash. You carry it all. Tell them, return to the roots, the healing shall take place. You are burning spears' voice in the fields of Tef. You tell me of the prophecy of Marcus, and I listen to you through the phlegm, through the gruff of your voice. Then suddenly, when I ask you about the passing of the emperor, you rise up like a staff of correction, your voice reaching back to the mountains, your warrior self, your yardman greatness, and you speak a mystery of those who have hairs, hairs but won't hear, who have eyes and won't see. And I know that this dread will one day stand in this soil and find his feet growing roots, that soon the earth will be darker for the arrival of Solomon. Let the heathens rage, let the doubters scoff, let this Ghanaian youth whose eyes have seen Seen the face of Jesus Christ, let him too sit and marvel at the faith of the Natty, for this African postman has forsaken father and mother and has come to stand before his imperial majesty to call only him father so that the father might call him son and the world will carry on its weary march and the ibises will swoop in the Ethiopian dusk and the smoke will rise from wood fires and the night will come with news that the rootsman after 400 years of being told he is homeless, has come home, yes, Ja, has come home. Sons and daughters of his imperial majesty, Haile Selassie, earth rightful ruler, without any apology say, this is the time when I and I and I should come home, yes, Ja, oh, come a hold na lego. Na lego, na lego. Kwame Dawes, thank you. You're welcome. That was Kwame Dawes reading African Postman and speaking with Matthew Shinoda. This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on March 1, 2013, as part of International Poets in Conversation and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute's Poets in the World series. The poem read by Kwame Dawes, African Postman, comes from his most recent collection, Duppy Conqueror, and is published by Copper Canyon Press. Other books by Kwame Dawes include Bruised Totem, 
Gomer's Song, Impossible Flying, Wisteria, and Hope's Hospice. Bob Marley, Lyrical Genius, which Dawes wrote in 2002, is considered the authoritative study of the lyrics of Bob Marley. Matthew Shinoda's first collection of poems, Somewhere Else, was published in 2005 and was named a debut book of the year by Poets and Writers magazine. His most recent book is Seasons of Lotus, Seasons of Bone. You can learn more about Matthew Shinoda and Kwame Dawes and read some of their work by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll also find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, to which Kwame Dawes contributes, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.